You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, November 28th, 2007, and this is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. Joining me this evening are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, everybody. Hey, How is everyone tonight? Good, Steve. Couldn't Quite be fine. Better. Very good, but apparently you're not good, Steve. Oh, we'll, we'll get to that a bit later. Um, <laughs> Jay's, re- Jay's referring to a recent Skeptico podcast, which talks about the Skeptics Guide specifically. And we'll be getting Ooh. that into the beginning of the email section of our show. But first, let's do some news items. Several of our listeners referred us to this uh, New York Times editorial by Paul Davies, this past Saturday's edition of the New York Times, in which he claims that science is based upon faith. Uh, have you guys had a chance to read this? Yep. Yes. So this is a uh, this is a claim that we hear frequently. Davis, for example, writes, The problem with this neat separation into non-overlapping magisteria, as Stephen Jay Gould described, science and religion, is that science has its own faith-based belief system. All science proceeds on the assumption that nature is ordered in a rational and intelligible way. You couldn't be a scientist if you thought the universe was a meaningless jumble of odds and ends, haphazardly juxtaposed. When physicists probe to a deeper level of subatomic structure or astronomers extend the reach of their instruments, they expect to encounter additional elegant mathematical order. And so far, this faith has been justified. So, (laughs) you know, again, this is a claim that we hear frequently, and I think that Davies is making the really common mistake of confusing methodological naturalism with philosophical naturalism. What he's saying is that science assumes that the laws of the universe are stable and that they make sense. And he says that science requires faith in that. And that is absolutely not correct. That is a complete misunderstanding of science. Science doesn't really require anything because science is just a system of uh, of methodology. It assumes methodological naturalism, the idea that effects have causes, that that the system internally sort of functions together and makes sense, the system meaning nature, because it has to assume that. It it takes that as a, a premise only because the methods of science only work within that framework. So it's actually not an assumption about reality. It's not faith in any particular metaphysical ultimate reality. It's just saying these are the methods that that work and therefore these are the methods that science is going to use because it's the only it's the only ones in which you can proceed with empirical, you know, hypothesis testing. It actually is agnostic towards the ultimate metaphysical realities of the universe. So his entire premise is false. So, Steve, would you say that it's wrong? This, the following statement is wrong. I have faith in the scientific method. Well, it depends on what you mean by by that. I think we use the term faith differently. If that means that it has worked so far, and therefore I think it's highly probable it will continue to work in the future, then I think that that's a legitimate statement. But if you're saying you believe something as a choice without justification, then I, th- I think that, that it doesn't apply. The term faith doesn't apply. Okay. that that Because I, I say that. I say I have faith in the scientific method because yeah. from my perspective, I'm saying that I'm banking on the proof upon proof that science has delivered over, over the years. 
Right. So, you know, we, we hear this a lot from the intelligent design crowd, uh, and I'm sure that they love these kind of editorials because this is, this is their mantra, the notion that you have to have faith in, the, in, in science or faith in evolution, and that uh, they, they've been complaining endlessly. And this is, you know, Philip Johnson, who basically started in the intelligent design movement. This was his core premise, was that science is, should not be based upon naturalism, on the assumption of naturalism, because that's rigging the game. It's rigging the game against supernatural or spiritual explanations. And they're, they're, that's, they're continuing to make that case. In fact, in preparation for our show tonight, I was listening to an episode of Skeptico, the podcast Skeptico from a few episodes ago where he interviewed an intelligent design proponent. And that's what it was all about. It was all about scientists are assuming philosophical naturalism and they're not go they're not following the evidence where it goes they're only they're restricting their inquiry to naturalistic explanations and that that's not fair that's rigging the game what, what that misses is that that methodological naturalism is not a choice it's a necessity we're not limiting the answers that we're willing to consider to the ones that fit our paradigm we're limiting the questions to ones that can be answered scientifically. If you can't formulate your hypothesis in a way that it is that it can be tested, it can be falsified, then it doesn't meet the minimum criteria for being considered as science. That they totally do not get that at all. And that's true at on the spiritual end, like the intelligent design proponents, and it's true on the new age end, like you know, Alex from Skeptico, because they were in complete agreement on this point, that skeptics and scientists are feeding into their own assumption of, of uh, philosophical naturalism, and it's completely untrue. What I don't understand is, you know, going back to what Carl Sagan said so eloquently, is that science delivers the goods. I mean, mm-hmm. science in and of itself is a system that has been proven over and over and over again to work. That's a good point, Jay, and I often refer to that as the meta-experiment of science. If methodological naturalism didn't work because our universe was hopelessly not rational or not, not naturalistic... A-causal. It was a-causal or retro-causal, or the rules, the laws of the universe changed frequently or could be suspended at random or by the whim of some some being if this if these things were true or if you know if our universe were part of a of a larger universe that we could not access but that influenced our universe whatever if any of those situations were true then science wouldn't work very well you know we would be constantly running up against enduring anomalies that we could never resolve we couldn't make sense out of things that we thought were well established would be overturned chaotically and at random. And that's just not the case. Science has been working quite well over the past few hundred years, slowly, methodically building an ever-improving model that is very, very powerful in its ability to predict the future, to predict what's going to happen. That is the only criterion by which science is, is, is really judged. You know, how well does it predict the outcome of future observations? That, and that doesn't prove philosophical naturalism, just like you can't really prove anything in science, right? Nothing is proven metaphysically in science. All we could say is that so far all the evidence is pointing in that direction. Bob, you sent me the next news item 
on a new computer brain. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, this uh, is pretty interesting. One of the holy grails of neuroscience is, I think since its inception, is the creation of, of a simulation of a, of a human brain. Um, and of course, with the advent of, the, of, the compu- of computers, it was obvious that the, the best way to embody that simulation would be in, in a digital computer. Scientists in Switzerland working with IBM researchers have shown that a, a computer simulation of a part of a, of a rat brain called the neocortical column, which is arguably one of the most complex uh, parts of the mammalian brain, it appears to behave like its biological counterpart, which they're calling uh, a pretty pretty big milestone. Now, up until yesterday, I had never even heard of uh, neocortical columns, not yeah. specifically. And apparently they are the basic building blocks of the cortex, the outer the outer part of the brain, specifically the neocortex, which is the most recently evolved um, outer folded part of the brain. They consist of, in humans, about 60,000 neurons, and they're they're pretty small. They're about half a millimeter wide and two about two millimeters long. So they're they're pretty tiny, but they are the fundamental unit, functional unit of the brain. And it's they're extremely complex. They figured that if they were going to if you have a goal of duplicating or simulating the brain, that's the one thing you really need to nail. So that's yeah. what they've been trying. That's what they've been trying to do. Also, they, another thing I, about the uh, the neocortical um, columns. Apparently, that was a um, a milestone in, in human brain development about I think about two hundred million years ago, Steve, when mammals uh, split off from reptiles, and the uh, I guess the the neocortex started to grow at that point. Yeah, that's true. I mean, the reptilian brain is what uh, in mammals you know, we actually call it the reptilian brain, but that's the, the deep primitive brain structures, and you know, reptiles have only a very a, a minimal sort of cortical right. ribbon on top of that where in mammals that it, you know became the bulk of the brain and and right well, i think the, it's about 80% of the brain now the neocortex yeah. is about 80% of the brain yeah and it's the more primitive reptilian part of it, it functions more for automatic type of reflexes as well as uh, basic emotions things like that but any all the thinking right. part of the brain is the is the cortex it's the mammalian the so-called you know, higher cognitive functions yeah. well it's these it's these columns that have been multiplying for for millions of years and as as they multiplied our our, our brains became more and more sophisticated and it, they're actually responsible for the folds you see in the brain because the, the, there's obviously selective pressure to have more of these more of these columns in the cortex and in order to make room that's they kind of just expanded any way they could and that's actually why we have all the folds in the, yeah. the outer part of the brain right because it's the, the classic it's, the, it's not just the volume it's the surface area because right because of the this vertical organization that's the bulk of the connections in the cortex run vertically of course there's also horizontal cross connections but the primary processing unit right. if you will is this vertical column so the to get more vertical columns in, you need more surface area, and therefore you need this, the wrinkled folds of the brain, not just an expanding right. you know, balloon, for example. That's right. So this is really cool. I mean, I like in the title it says, a computer simulation could eventually allow neuroscience to be carried out in silico. I like that term, in silico. Yeah. Right. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, because as we reverse engineer the brain. We start to actually see that this piece of the brain is doing this, and this other piece, it connects to this other piece of the brain, which has this other specific function. This is how they interact. You know, we're, we're definitely going to be moving in the direction where, where this line of technological development, you know, actually computer modeling the brain, is then going to start 
working alongside of the neuroscience, which is modeling the different pieces of the brain. So imagine in 5, 10, 20 years, 30 years, where, when, where these computer models are actually you know, not just duplicating the raw structure of the brain, but actually in greater and greater detail. And we could actually test our models of how the brain works by simulating them in a computer and, and then do things like saying, well, what happens if we turn off you know, this nucleus or this part of the brain and then see what the net result is? I think that the, these, this is going, these two, two parallel lines of research are going to play off of each other in very, very interesting ways over the next couple of All decades. Right. Now, Henry Mark Henry Markram is the co-director of the Brain Mind Institute at the Ecole Polytechnique Federal de Lausanne in Switzerland. I probably mangled that pronunciation, but um, he had uh, he said what you said, Steve. What we're doing is re- we're reverse engineering the brain. Yeah. But uh, he had another quote. He said, "We're not trying to build a copy of the human brain or some magical artificial intelligence device." I wonder why he threw. I don't know. I don't like how he put magical in there. Like. Yeah. You need magic to get uh, AI. Uh, this is really discovering a discovering of how the brain works is how he sees it. Mm-hmm. Now, it, and I agree with him that this is what they're doing. But I don't think he should he could ignore the the potential applications because they're at, they're at the point right now this milestone that they passed where the where the um, the output is you know the the output of this simulation matches what they're seeing biologically. Now they they're taking the next step and they want to start actually extended and beyond just this one you know this one neocortical column and extended into you know many others and then eventually eventually the the whole brain of at least of the the mice that they're that they're trying mm-hmm. to simulate here and then eventually after that a human obviously but their their time scale is 3 years for um um a rat brain and actually 10 years for a human brain but of course some some t- scientists scoff at that idea they think that 10 years is um you know, way yeah. too soon to, to even be talking about that. We'll but, see. You know, we'll, we'll see. And if it's ten or tw- if it's twenty years or thirty years, eventually, I don't think it's inherently impossible that we w- that we you know we won't have this type of simulation. And imagine yeah. what can come from that. He's kind of poo pooing that, saying trying to stay away from the whole AI thing and the whole copy of the human brain. But I, I think it's definitely those are extensions of his research that uh, that will inevitably inevitably come. Yeah, I agree. I think there's no question about that. So when you say they make a computer model of the brain, the first thing I think of is, is it possible that if they make a, a complex computer model, and if it's, if it's complete enough, could it obtain any kind of consciousness just on its own? And I know you just brought up the whole AI thing, but I mean, you would imagine if they could simulate the functioning, you know, the functionality of a human brain, why wouldn't it become conscious? I, I agree. I think if they have a sufficient level of de- detail and and I'm sure many other many other factors. I mean, I don't think you know neurons are some magical substrate that allows consciousness and nothing else can. I think if you have you know many other different types of stru- substrates, as long as they're you know as long as you know they're they're connected properly and and uh, lots of other things, I think there's no reason why you can't have this right. in in software. The interesting thing will be when. In whatever time frame, 20, 30, 40 years, we have powerful enough computers and we have adequately modeled the brain where we could create a virtual human brain in silicon or whatever, whatever computers are made out of. And the result of that behaves as if it is conscious and aware and artificially intelligent. Of course, you know, you, that, I, I predict that will lead to the 
the philosophical debate about whether or not it is really conscious and self-aware or if it just right. acts like it does. And I don't know how we would be able to resolve that. But that's interesting from the in terms of the, the, the dualism versus materialism debate. And of course, the dualists think that the physical brain is not adequate to explain the phenomenon of mind, of consciousness. And I maintain, and a lot of neuroscientists maintain, that it, the, the materialist models doing just fine, thank you. And we, don't, we do not need dualism to explain any neurological phenomena. But if the dualists are right, then we should run into problems. I mean, we should, our, if we make a purely materialistic model of the brain, it should not result in something that acts like consciousness. We should, there should be some mysteries that something, something spiritual, something, you know, missing. It's missing, right. Missing, a missing from, ingredient. From our st- attempt to simulate the brain, and right. I'm I'm sure you know the dualists will have some rationalization if and when that occurs, and if it does turn out that you know there is something missing, then we'll definitely have to reconsider our you know materialistic assumptions. But, Steve, does the human um, brain have software-like programming? Um, yeah, uh, sure. I mean, it's it's you know more of an analog type of programming and the way our neurons are connected together. But sure. My brain runs Unix. I mean, a child, a child is born, and genetically, that, that brain is created with base information. There's base information in the brain, understanding of, of living in a 3D world and whatnot, right? There's all sorts of things that are built into it. Well, there are certain universals that, that all humanity shares, and the assumption is that those universals are universal because they're built into how the brain is designed and functions. It's hardwired. Yeah, it's just hardwired in the structure of the brain itself, you know. And there's, you know, this is gets a little bit into the nature versus nurture debate, but I think the evidence is pretty clear that although it's, you know, ultimately behavior and whatnot is a complex interaction of the two things, but we're not born as blank slates, just processing machines. We're born with certain tendencies, emotions, you know, desires, motivations, and behaviors. And then those interact with the environment as we as we develop. Um, so that's something that's encoded in the genes and reflected in the hardwiring of the brain. Absolutely. Well, this is a, this is cool research. I'll be definitely interested in following it as it develops. And Rebecca, the third item comes from your blog this week about another fairly dramatic psychic ripoff. Yeah, yet another crazy psychic makes off with hundreds of thousands of dollars of someone's money. She, her name is Lola Miller. She's a real looker, which you can see on the blog if you head over oh, there. Um, that that picture looks like they're, they're, it's like super low res, but maybe it isn't. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe she just actually looks like that. I don't know. What's that skin disease? Um, not in Patego, that this, where you're um, the mel- some problem with the melanin, so that she's got this weird, funky, uneven skin coloring all over her face, or is it just a bad picture? You're thinking of vitiligo, but I think it could just be washout in the picture. I think it's called evil psychic disease, where the evil ugliness oh. just sort of seeps out the the skin. <laughs> like with, if you look at Sylvia Brown, this yeah. similar sort of thing going on there. But enough <laughs> of the fun ad homs. Um, she actually is an evil person. She uh, she convinced a woman in San Jose that. Uh, the woman was cursed and that her entire family was cursed and that the only way to remove this curse was by, ta-da, giving her $350,000 in cash and another hundred grand or so in 
furniture and uh, gift cards and all sorts of like a limo and hotel yeah. room. Three hundred and fifty thousand. She was liquid. Yeah, it was uh, quite a bit of cash there. Right. And wow. so then, of course, she made off with the money. Um, but the the nice thing is that cops did get on the case and tracked her down to New Jersey, I guess, and uh, brought her back to California. And now she is due in court December fifth, apparently. So we'll see how it goes. Did the mark get her money back? Um, not as of yet, I don't think. I mean, especially because a lot of it was in, you know, services as well as yeah. goods. Well, the idea is it's $350,000 cash and ninety and 95000 in goods and services. So it was still mostly cash. Yeah. I'm not sure uh, I couldn't dig up that info. So, so it, it's know. against the law to convince someone to hand over a bunch of money. Uh, under false pretenses, that's right. It's such a fine line that they draw because in this case, the woman lied to someone in order to get the money off mm-hmm. of them. Okay. But, you know, Sylvia Brown does that every day of her life. Right. And she is not being tracked down and dragged to court, unfortunately, um, yet. Yeah, I mean, you so. made a good point in your blog where you say that, so if you steal... If you pretend to be a psychic in order to steal half a million dollars from one person, that's, a, that's illegal. But if you're stealing millions of dollars collectively from you know, hundreds or thousands of individuals, then that's okay. Exactly. And if you look at someone like Sylvia Brown, she's couched the whole thing as a religion that people yeah. buy into. It's, it's kind of amazing that, that we allow some people to build up a whole industry around it and other people you know, we track down and sue. But to be optimistic about it, at least they got this one, and there were, um, you know, it's it's always good press on our end to, when you get this sort of thing out there. That hey, look, you know, curses aren't a real thing. Uh, mm-hmm. This woman was a scam artist, and don't do that. <laughs> so I think the more stories like this we have, the better. Yeah, although the defenders will always say that, well, you know, she was just because someone's abusing one. it doesn't mean that there aren't any real psychics out there. Oh, yeah. yeah. She's just a bad, bad apple, you know? Yeah. As soon as we see a real psychic, you know. Right. I'm which is, which is true. <laughs> the logic of that is true. But, yeah, but show us the, the quote-unquote real psychic. Trot one out, as Houdini said. Yeah, until then, they're all frauds. One more news item before we go on to email. And, again, many of our listeners sent this in to us so thanks for sending in these items it does help us uh, this one is on wireless technology and autism autism seems to be a favorite target target these days for quacks and charlatans this is a press release that was sent out and dutifully repeated on uh, many news sites especially many um, techie news sites like computerweekly.com printed the uh, the press release without any real independent journalism or skepticism. And the press release claims that electromagnetic radiation from Wi-Fi devices causes autism. For example, the article is quoted as saying, the author, authors say that the rise in cases of autism is paralleled by the huge growth in mobile phone and Wi-Fi usage since the late 1990s, with worldwide wireless usage now having reached nearly 4 billion people. Of course, there, as I've stated before, there is no increase in the true incidence of autism. Uh, the research clearly shows that 
autism diagnose, diagnostic rates are increasing because the definition is, was broadened and because surveillance has increased. Thank God, because it seems like everything causes autism these right. days. I know. There's people out there that just love autism. Like Anything that's been happening over the last 10, 15, or 20 years, you could say correlates with an increase in the diagnostic rates of autism. So it's just looking for correlations and then assuming causation. Although this study that the press release was referring to wasn't an epidemiological study. It wasn't actually showing a correlation between Wi-Fi usage and autism. It was based on the assumption that heavy metals cause autism, like mercury, so it's buying into the whole mercury. ACDC. Yeah, it causes autism thing. And then that Wi-Fi uh, electromagnetic radiation impairs the brain cell's ability to clear out these heavy metals. And it further assumes that treatments designed to treat heavy metal poisoning actually do help autism, which has not been demonstrated to be true, and that Wi-Fi devices keep these treatments from working. So this, this is the study that they did. They looked at children with autism, and then they put the children into a, a, no, like a zero Wi-Fi environment, EMR-free environment, and they treated them with some treatment. that The, the, the uh, methods in this study don't actually give a lot of details, but in some treatment designed to, to get the heavy metals out of their system. And uh, they claim that the, that the kids improved. Of course, this is based upon just subjective you know, assessment by the parents. And they measured the um, heavy metals in like uh, hair and, and urine and feces, and the, towards the end of the study period, there was an increase in the amount of heavy metals that were coming out as a result of the treatments. They concluded that this means that the longer they were in the EMR-free environment, the more the cells were able to mobilize the heavy metals, and that's why it was increasing throughout the course of the treatment. Sounds so, like a logical fallacy. Yeah, I mean, the whole, the whole study was horrendously bogus uh, for multiple reasons. First, the, this is a really interesting thing. I've never seen this done before. They, they treat, this is all open label. It's not blinded, which is why it's all totally worthless. But what they did was they, looked, they, they did this study on one case, which they called the Sentinel case. And then whatever the result was, that was the outcome that was considered positive. And then they did the other people, and they had a similar result. That's cheating. That's peeking at the results and then declaring that the that a positive outcome, as if that's what they were looking for. Right. What we find, well, okay, that's that. We'll call that a that's a positive result. They they was no controls. You know, they didn't do this in a EM, EMR free and not free autism and no autism. Um, they had no real really a priori reason to predict that that whatever pattern they were seeing meant anything or confirm their conclusions. But that's actually. The least of it. I mean, that everything that I just described is why the results are completely worthless. But when you read the study, I mean, it's chock full of pseudoscience. One of the methods that they used to assess the the subjects was acupuncture. Oh, of course, yeah, that that makes perfect sense. Uh, here's some of their methods. Subjects were given intervention in a sequential protocol that included a series of non-chelation provocations, we're not told what those are, and nutritional formularies, we're not told what those are, focused on mitochondrial resuscitation, that's utter uh-huh. you know, pseudo-technobabble, te- you know, 
Depending on the clinical profile of the, pay, of the clients, wow. they, they divide them into two clinical profiles. Get this. Two general categories of subjects were defined for clinical purposes, those with liver clearance as an indicated vulnerability and those with kidney function weakness. These determinations are critical for precision of intervention for each subject and were based on a, on a priori laboratory analyses, acupuncture meridian tests, medical history, consultations with subjects, parents, and clinical observations. So they decided you know, which kids had problems with liver function and which kids had problems with, with, with kidney function based upon you know, just pseudoscientific nonsense. And get this, in order to put the kids into an EMR-free environment, they, they, they tell us in their methods that applications of body-worn sympathetic resonance technology, energy resonance wow. technology, and molecular resonance effect technology were introduced as appropriate. Oh my God! Look those up. That's all pseudoscientific nonsense. These are uh. these are not established devices. These are just using magic to prove magic. It's made up, <laughs> right? It's right. fiction. Well, I mean, what better to prove magic than with magic? You know? Yeah. Right. 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 So, the, but the th- so okay. So it was a terrible study. It was done by people who who would totally buy into this kind of stuff. Their their uh, credentials are all in. You know, alternative you know medicine crap. They're they're not really legitimate you know researchers, and the whole premise of the study was based upon. Or the, there were multiple premises of the study are all not true. They're all false premises. The methods are terrible, and they are sprinkled throughout with just pseudoscientific nonsense. And yet, the press release really doesn't give you that impression. The press release is you know we've shown that Wi-Fi causes autism. And it was really just credulously reproduced uh, by many, many sites. There were a couple of sites which, which did like, ask some really basic questions like, what is the, uh, the journal in which it was allegedly published? It was published in the Australasian Journal of Clinical Environmental Medicine. It claimed to be peer-reviewed, but it's not listed on any of the peer-reviewed uh, listing sites like the National Library of Medicine. It has there's nothing, no, nothing that indicates it's actually a legitimate journal. They uh, link only to a, w- a website which is in which is in construction, so there's no way to actually get your hands on it. I I <laughs> got my hands on the PDF because a listener in Sweden sent it to me. Otherwise, I would have had no way of digging it up. It wasn't on any, and I have access to everything through Yale. So I mean, if it exists in the medical literature and it's legitimate, I can get access to it. You know, it's, a couple of people did do like ask these basic questions like. What's this journal? Who are these guys? And it turned out who that, funded? Yeah, who funded this? It's a, it's all it's again. So the the journal is the is like the official publication of a an organization dedicated to this stuff. You know, it's not like an independent scientific organization or a university or anything legitimate. So it is you know it, it, it it's just another example of this alternate universe that's that's being created, you know, within so-called complementary and alternative medicine. You know, they're just creating their own pseudoscientific infrastructure and completely bypassing legitimate science, and this is the result. You know, and if you're not savvy, even if you're like Computer Weekly, you know, you can get totally snookered by this legitimate, sort of superficially legitimate-looking, legitimate-sounding press release, but you got to do the basic journalism and dig a little deeper to see that this is all just crap. Well... Let's go on to your emails. The first email comes from David Cano, who gives his location as the U.S., and he writes, 
Dear Skeptics, I am a long-time listener, first-time emailer. I decided to email you after listening to the last episode of the Skeptico podcast. I like to listen to that show mostly because it's very interesting to listen to some famous skeptics being interviewed by a guy who claimed to be a Skeptico. But it's obvious that he is a profound believer. Anyway, I was a little bit annoyed by their last episode. The whole episode was a clear attack on the skeptical community. The episode is a good source for almost any logical fallacy you could think of. More specifically, he directed his disappointment to Steve in the SGU, as this was the main focus of the episode. I think you guys should listen to the episode and maybe address some of his claims, particularly when he accused Steve of not doing research in in psychic detectives. Keep up the good work, David. Well, thank you, David. There were several other listeners uh, who also alerted us to this. There is a thread on the SGU forums. We certainly did take a listen to Alex's, uh, as is Alex Securis, who does the Skeptico podcast. I was interviewed uh, on his podcast a few months ago. And his last episode is really just him saying, all right, I give up, and just ranting against skeptics and the skeptical community for a half an hour or so. I have to say, it really was a terrible episode. He makes three basic claims against skeptics. One, that we uh, do not do research in the paranormal. Two, that we don't read the research. And the third is that we don't listen to the skeptical research, that we don't you know, abide by its findings, by the paranormal research. And he used quotes from, from myself and from uh, James Randi and from Richard, Richard Wiseman, Wiseman primarily to sort of make his points. You know, let's take things one at a time. You know, first, that, you know, we don't do, that we don't do research into the paranormal. He, his primary uh, piece of evidence for this was because you know, when we interviewed Jan Helen McGee uh, at the end of 2005, we, we agreed with her that we would, that we would test her uh, ability as a psychic detective and that when a suitable case you know, local to us here in Connecticut cropped up, that we would get her to give a psychic reading on that. And we haven't had an opportunity to do that since, uh, since we agreed to do the test. This is due to a couple of reasons. One is because, you know, we, I, I think in retrospect, our criteria for a suitable case is probably too difficult. We wanted, I wanted a case that was local to us that she would not have direct access to, that was fresh enough that we were likely to, be, to get a defend, that was still unsolved, but was fresh enough that we would be getting an outcome within a reasonable period of time. So I didn't want cold cases or cases that are unsolved and who knows how long they would take. They can't be cases that we just find through the popular media because then she could find out all the information that we could find out. Uh, you know, I didn't. I, I wanted to make control as much as possible. But also, the you know the the, the fact is, you know, we're extremely busy and things like that tend to get backburnered. It's hard for us to really keep on top of of everything and follow through with everything that we that we want to follow through on. So, but he was concluding from that that we're unwilling to do the research, that we're unwilling to even do personal explorations into this kind of stuff. And that is a completely unfair, completely patently, factually false claim. And either he you know, really hasn't been paying attention or listening to our show, or you know, he just is not, the facts are just not penetrating, which is what, what I really think. Um, for example... At the end, he gives a challenge to skeptics to to get a psychic reading, find a quote-unquote good psychic, and don't give them any feedback, and then score their results. And I was, Jay and I were chatting about this before the show. It's just one of those happy coincidences of you know quirkinesses of randomness and fate that 
pretty much exactly what he said skeptics should do to convince themselves is exactly what we did last weekend or two weekends ago yeah, and reported ago. on on last week's podcast. You know, just by coincidence, we went to a psychic fair. We had a reading with three different psychics. These were psychics that you know had uh, reputations that were being promoted by the, the you know the organization. They, they were not obscure or anything. They were as, as good as anybody out there. And we recorded the, uh, the 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 entire process. And guess what, Alex? They scored Zippo. Zero. They didn't even come close. It was it was pathetic. And just to run down some of the things that else we've done, you know, we, we've never turned away uh, an offer to do research. We were contacted by some local uh, investigators who thought they had good evidence for electronic voice phenomenon. We went on a reading with them. You know, on a, we went into the field with them to look at their methods. We looked at all their evidence. We said, give us your best piece of evidence. They did. We looked at it. We investigated the Warrens. Again, give us your best evidence. We looked at anything that they would give us. And that was a long-term investigation. That was not That was long-term, that- yeah. We've done preliminary investigations for the Rand the psychic Randy. challenge, looking at you know, but the Ouija board guys, the psychic guy, you know, people who claim to have ESP. Uh, we've investigated multiple local um, ghost hunting organizations and allegedly haunted houses. So we're we do this kind of you know basic investigatory research. You know, not lab research. We're not lab researchers in parapsychology or psychology, uh, but we will investigate anything anybody wants to show us. So, and if anything, you know, to be honest, if we had more time. If yeah. we weren't all working forty plus hours a week, I would I would love to do this every day. If this was if, if this could be my full time job, I would do it. But you know, it just doesn't work out that way. And plus, Alex cites us as the example. Like somehow this is this is very common. No matter what skeptics you're talking to, whether you're talking to James Randi, whether you're also talking to the people at CSI. I mean, forget it. Between Joe Nickel and James Randi, do you know how many investigations and research that they've done into these things over the course of the years? Right. It's plentiful. It's bountiful. Mm-hmm. And Alex brings up brings up the uh, the, the Jan Helen McGee. Uh, incident as that's typical of what skeptics are all about. It's so wrong. Yeah, Richard Wiseman, which he brings up, does uh, investigations and collaborates with paranormal researchers. Ray Hyman has has done you know research and collab has collaborated with uh, with others on this. So it's just it's just a patently absurd charge. In fact, it, the skeptics are the only ones who are doing these kind of research and investigations. You know, mainstream scientists are generally not doing it because they know it's all bunk and they're not interested in it. So, I mean, he, he's uh, – and I, I told him this during – when I was interviewed for his show that, you know, the skeptics are scientists or scientifically minded individuals who are showing interest in these areas because of the great public interest in them. And, you know, we're doing them a favor. You know, if, if it weren't for us – Nobody would care about this. I mean, there'd be, there'd be, there's, I mean, nobody in the scientific community. Obviously, the public has an interest in it. Steve, you know, I think this would be a good opportunity for us to mention um, Richard from the Tank. He mm-hmm. does, he does research, right, Rebecca? Richard Saunders. Richard Saunders, yeah. And also, today is his birthday. FYI, oh, happy birthday, Richard! Hey. Happy birthday, Richard! Remember, skeptics West. We met them at uh, TAM5. Didn't they do research? I don't remember when we talked CFI about CFI West. CFI West. Center for Inquiry West. West. Yeah, absolutely. That's uh, Jim, Un- Jim Underdown. Jim Underdown. Runs the, uh, runs the show out there. Ben Radford. Yeah. It's also a complete non sequitur. You know? and, and we hear this from the UFO people, you know, Bigfoot people, not just the ESP enthusiasts. Uh, everyone you know, who does not like skeptical attention to their claims and their methods 
you know, tries to pull this one on us. Well, you're not really doing research yourself. You're just naysayers. It's irrelevant. Everyone is, you know, even if you do research full time and that's your job, whatever research you do is only a tiny, tiny slice of all the research that gets done. Even in your area, forget about the broader areas of science. Because of the consilience of science, because of interdisciplinary uh, science, you have to rely upon the research of people in other areas or, or adjacent or tangential areas to your own. You have to develop the ability and the skill to interpret the literature, even if you're not doing research in that area. And what, what scientific skeptics are trying to do is provide the kind of peer review and, and critical analysis that typically happens in, in mainstream science and apply that to the more of these fringe areas because the mainstream scientists are ignoring it out of hand, usually. It really is incredible that Alex is, has chosen to attack the skeptics because he doesn't like the conclusions that we come to. Well, he's, one of his premises was that he, was, he sounded to me, actually, to be very disappointed that his podcast didn't actually fuel a lot of this heated debate between, between fringe research and skeptics. I think that's what he wanted Skeptico to do. And what, what he ended up getting was much more of a dismissal from the skeptics that he was interviewing as, listen, there's nothing here to chew on. It's worthless. It's it's a dead end, and it's but a waste know, of Jay, time. But you know, Jay, that it was a totally self-fulfilling prophecy on his part. Yep. You know, he, if you listen to these interviews, there was no learning curve for Alex over the 30 interviews, you know, shows that he has done, over the interviews that he has done. He went into this with certain biases and assumptions clearly demonstrated in his interview styles and the questions that he asked, and he showed no learning curve, meaning that the kind of things that people, that skeptics were telling him along the way, he never incorporated into his thinking. You know, he, the things that he was ranting about on this most recent episode are things that, that I addressed when I was interviewed on his show. It's as if it never happened. Like the discussion was never even taking place in his mind. He was just cherry picking quotes from the skeptics in order to support his a priori uh, assumptions. The the big assumption that he makes is that, and he says he discovered this as he started to to explore that, and that's fine. Let's say you know early on he he said, "Wow, there's a lot of evidence for psi." How come scientists and skeptics are not as compelled and impressed by this as I am? But he very quickly, if not initially, very quickly got to the conclusion that there was compelling evidence for Psy. And, and he could not understand, and even though I laid it out for him, and others have laid it out for him in, in detail, he could not understand or accept that scientists and skeptics have legitimate reasons for not being compelled by that evidence. And in fact, on my interview with him, I told him that is the key. The key, you're trying to understand the gulf between skeptics and believers. That's it. It's why are you compelled by the evidence and why am I not compelled by the evidence? That's where we should focus our discussion. He never went there. He never wanted to go there. He only no, he had preconceived notions. Yeah, I mean, obviously. He only went to, he, he proceeded from the conclusion that it was compelling. And, there, and then he, his reasoning is, well, if it's compelling and skeptics don't accept it, then they're just dismissing it and ignoring it. Or they're, you know, and, and then that leads him to the conclusion that, well, we must be afraid. We're afraid of the implications of this research because we have to protect our precious materialist paradigm. Uh, yeah, or he, I mean, he, he also claims that um, it, because it doesn't fit into our ideology... We, yeah. we ignore it and reject any evidence that, that has come up that proves that, for example, like Dean Radin, 
you know, yeah. uh, his research supposedly proves that that uh, there's precognition. Well, he would he would Alex would respond, I think, saying that that didn't he mention in his podcast that uh, Raiden's research has been duplicated? Is that Replicated, true? Yeah. Let, let, me, let me get to that, because he, he does focus on... The, his next premise is that skeptics don't read the literature. And again, he, he arrives at that conclusion based upon his assumption, his, his premise, that there's compelling evidence. And therefore, we must not be reading the literature, because we would then see the same compelling evidence that he does. And he uses Dean Radin's uh, experiments as an example, um, and he uses the uh, the dogs anticipating when their their owners are coming home as an example. Uh, and let me address those two that he discussed in his last podcast. So Dean Radin's experiments. Dean Radin did a meta-analysis of studies looking at the ability for people to know psychically when they're being stared at. So they they show some evidence that they know that they're being stared at even when they're not getting any sensory cues to that effect. And he took Ray Hyman to task and and through that took me to task for not being familiar with the latest meta-analysis that Dean Radin did about this. And he still is clinging to that. He's really clinging to this. As, See, they're not looking at this research, which is compelling. Well, I, I did review Dean Radin's meta-analysis of, these, of this literature. And this is a perfect example of why I'm not compelled by the evidence and why Alex and Dean Radin and Rupert Sheldrake and Marilyn Schlitz and, and that crowd is compelled by it because they're not good scientists and they don't get it. Here, in order for a science to be compelling enough to establish a new phenomenon in science, we need to see a few things. We need to see science that has good methodology where you know, any artifacts are weeded out. We need to see results that are statistically significant. We need to see replication so we know it's just not one lab or one guy. And we need to see an effect size that's above noise. And we need to see all of those things at the same time. And a mechan- what- throw in a mechanism, that would be nice. I'm not even going there, Bob. Yeah, I know, but it would be nice. It would be nice. Mechanism, that'd be the icing on the cake. But let's right. just say we don't understand. So that, but you know, let's say we don't understand enough to, to, to know what the mechanism would be. Let's just decide if it exists as a phenomenon. Then we could worry later about the mechanism. Right. The fact that we we lack these things in those areas for which there is no plausible mechanism, I think is not a coincidence. But let's just look at those four criteria. So what we'll get from people like Alex is, well, look at this study has good statistical significance, and this study has good methodology, and maybe you have two or even three of those things, but never all four at the same time. You have studies which show large effect sizes, but then as you improve the methods, the effect sizes shrink. Or you have small studies that have no statistical significance, or whatever. Now, Dean Radin's meta-analysis showed that looking at you know all of the what he considered the quality studies showed that the effect size with 50-50 being chance the effect size was about 55% a 5% variance now it was statistically significant because there was tons of trials that were run and this was after the uh, the methodology evolved so that you know the obvious methodological flaws were removed so you have well, let's grant good methodology. Let's grant replication. Let's grant statistical significance. Effect size, teeny tiny. Why is it that the effect size is so small? So what, what Alex doesn't understand is that we're, um, we're not compelled by tiny effect sizes because 
to be compelled by it, the unstated major premise is that perfect methodology should produce an effect size of zero, meaning that there's no noise in the system, meaning that we're able to conduct trials with people and get everything perfect. And that's just not the case. That's not what we see in science. When you get down to single-digit effect sizes, we assume that's the noise in the system, that that's a null effect, negative. So I look at that data and I see, oh, as the methodology improved, the effect size shrank, and when you pull everything together, you get down to an effect size of about 4 or 5%. Dean Radin himself, in his own analysis, admits that there's a publication bias, and if you take that into account, the effect size shrinks further, but it doesn't get all the way to zero. So maybe we're down to 3 or 4%. That's negative, folks. That's negative. Alex finds that absolutely compelling enough to say that the materialistic paradigm is dead based upon a 4% variance. Steve, what would, what would the number have to be in order for the light to go on? It depends on what you're doing research in, but if you're, when you're dealing with people anywhere in the system, you know, we like to see effect sizes of, you know, to say that this is compelling, you know, you like to see effect sizes of 30% or so. To say that it's interesting, this is something that we need to look at. I would like to see at least a 20% effect size. And then if you have some really objective outcome measures and, and, and minimal potential for, for unforeseen biases in, in the way the data is being collected, you know, maybe like 10 to 20% is like, that's borderline. You know, that's where it's like, ah, you know, that's kind of small, not really convinced by it, but maybe there's something there. Less than 10% doesn't even deserve a pass. I mean, that's just single digit is noise. So Steve, let's say that you did have 10% and then you conducted the next study. You, you, yeah. There was enough interest there. And yeah. then you tighten up your science. You, you, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're double blind. You're, you're doing it better next time. You're, you're really digging yeah. in now. And then, okay, the, and this is what supposedly, the, the, this is the way that scientific research is supposed to work. Then you would have a much more clear picture of what's, ha- what's happening. So right. that, that's my question. Okay, so there's 4%. So they do another study. So they get 4%. So they do another study and they get 4%. The number never goes up. They never get anywhere with it. It just remains the same. Yeah. And the same is true of the Gansfeld experiments where initially saying, oh, 20, 30% effect size. Okay, well, let's clean up the methodology. Oh, it's 10%. Oh, but let's fix this. Oh, it's 4%. But look, it's very statistically significant. No, it's, it's shrunk to noise. You know, and listen, you know, I do do research, you know, not in this area, but I do do research and I realize uh, how easy it is to throw a little bias into the numbers, you know? If, just to give you an example, I'm not saying that any of this thing actually happened, but just to give you an example of a really easy way in which subtle bias can creep into this kind of study. Let's say you run a, you run a series and, and the results are not looking good, and then you think to yourself, huh, did I calibrate my equipment properly? You know, let's start over and calibrate the equipment and then go forward, you know, and just not count this trial. You know, how do I know that that kind of stuff's not happening in any of these studies? That's, you know, that's not necessarily even conscious fraud. It may be completely legitimate to think that you got to, whatever, run some controls before. And, but if you might be more likely to think to do that if the result, if you just happen to be on a negative streak than if you had a few positive hits in there, maybe you would not think or do anything to sacrifice those. And again, this is just a hypothetical example, but there's a hundred things like that where really subtle bias can creep into studies like this. So you just can't believe effect sizes that are that tiny. 
but Alex does. And even and and the thing is, at least admit that that's the difference. At least you know I tried to explain to him this is what the difference is. This is why you believe one thing and I believe something else. Instead, he's talking about paradigms and and being afraid of changing our worldview and being dismissive and not knowing the literature. Oh, it really was a whiny, uh, insulting. Uh, really childish approach that he took to to the whole thing. Just for the record, I did email Alex and invite him on our show so that we could he could defend himself directly. I did not give him much of a, of leeway, so it's not really. I'm not saying that he refused to come on, or he he might not have even gotten my email yet. But just wanted to let you the audience know that I did invite him on, and I'm, and I'm willing to have him on the show at a later date um, if he decides to come on. Be happy to have this conversation with him directly. This all happened very quickly, so he, he didn't really get much notice for tonight's show. When he started the show. You know, I, I gave a listen to it, and I my initial impression was, well, you know, this is interesting. You, you know, he he has a different attitude. You know, he he kind of believes both in skepticism and in the supernatural to some degree, and it, you know, let it play itself out. We didn't criticize his podcast. I don't think we've ever criticized any podcast on this show. Um, after he interviewed you, Steve, I sent him an email, and I you know I told him I thought he did a great job with the interview, and I thought it was a very good show. You know, I think I think we were very civil with him, even though we saw the podcast slipping into, you know, much more of a, a pseudoscientific direction. We never never talked bad about him in any way. Mm-hmm. He, out of the blue, he decides that he's he's going to uh, rabbit punch us. Like, didn't oh, make an example of us? Yeah, didn't initiate the conversation. I don't think this is out of the blue. If you were paying attention, and also Jay, this is exactly what we experience every time. We, you know, we had our long-term relationship with Ed and Lorraine Warren. It was the same thing. Very civil, very nice. We're just interested in doing observations. But as, you know, the results of our analysis were going against them, they turned on us. You know, at one point it dawned on Ed Warren that we were not going to endorse his crappy evidence. And then the, they switch, the, flips, the switch flips and then he's against us. And the same thing with Alex. I mean, Alex just, you know, didn't realize... You know, and he still doesn't get. He doesn't understand the difference between his position and the skeptical position. That's because he never really made an honest attempt to understand the skeptical position clearly, because he clearly doesn't understand it. And you know, eventually, just realized that wait, these people aren't all coming over to my way of seeing things. It must the problem must be with them. So I'm going to attack them. That was the process. Very quickly, since he brought up Richard Wiseman's uh, experiment, let me go over that. He very very quickly. He said that Rupert Sheldrake did an experiment where he looked at the ability for a dog to know when their master is coming home. So, you know, he had one crew watching the dog at home, another crew out with the owner. Um, When the owner decides to come home, the dog goes out to the porch to wait for him, as if there was some kind of psychic connection. Richard Wiseman replicated the research, you know, but instead of using more open-ended criteria, he said, okay, well, you have to have some specific criterion for what we're going to count as a hit. So we said, okay, if the dog goes out to the porch the first time, that, that's, what, and that will, that's what will count as the dog anticipating the owner coming home. And the result was negative. Then, you know, based upon some feedback, he said, okay, maybe there's too much noise in there. So let's say the first time the dog goes out to the porch for more than two minutes, we'll consider that a positive outcome. They did the study, it was negative. So... Wiseman says, I replicated the research, it was negative. Sheldrake then says, well, no, if you, you have to look at all of the doggy behavior and you do like an analysis of the patterns and the dog is more likely to, to go out to the porch and spend more time there at the time that the master is returning home. And if you go back and look at Wiseman's video, that the dogs follow that same pattern. And then 
uh, again, Alex thinking he had Wiseman. You know, he has that little, that gotcha moment. Like, I got Wiseman. Because Wiseman admitted that the pattern was same and that he replicated Sheldrake's research. And now he still won't admit that that's proof of size. So I got him. He's a hypocrite. But Alex completely is not even on his last on this show he didn't even acknowledge Wiseman's response to that you know he's he's accusing us of not like knowing the literature and being up on the latest thing he you know dinged Wiseman for that whereas Wiseman spelled out in detail why he thinks that this study still don't show uh, evidence for Psy. One is because we have no idea that Sheldrake wasn't just retrodicting, you know, looking for patterns and then declaring that a positive. Wiseman set the criteria up ahead of time and even revised them to try to make it more fair, and it still was negative. The other thing is, that Wiseman brought up, very, very good point, that if you, were, if you hypothesize that when the owner leaves, the longer the owner is away, the more anxious the dog is going to get for the owner's return. So the dog will go to the porch more and more frequently and spend more and more time there until the owner returns. And of course... The, the, the owner returning ends the cycle. So the dog will have spent the most time at the porch right before the owner comes home. So that explains all the data without hypothesizing a psychic ESP connection between the dog and the owner. That's why Wiseman didn't think it was evidence for Psy. It's a completely, perfectly reasonable interpretation of that research. Occam's razor. And Alex missed it, completely missed it, and he was criticizing Wiseman for being a hypocrite. So was Sheldrake employing the Texas sharpshooter fallacy? It, we don't know because he didn't really publish his methods in a way that we could know. You know? Hmm. And, you know, the reason why we're spending so much time talking about this, you know, it's partly because he directly challenged us. But you know, what, everything that Alex said, this is the standard line of the Psy community. This is what they all say. This is all the points that Alex makes. This is the party line of, of the paranormal believers. I think what we need to do is first off we need to take Alex up on his on his challenge. We will we will go find three more. I think he asked for for the uh, skeptic to go to three mediums. Yeah. We'll go to three mediums. We will again again we will do it exactly the way he wants whatever whatever criteria that he wants we'll we'll do. And Hey Alex, you Alex, you can even choose the mediums. Choose the three best psychics mediums you want. And and we will do this, and we and we will report on this, and we'll we, you know we should pick a di- you know a time limit so we make sure that we do complete it in a reasonable amount of time. Well, you know if if he if he picks them, we'll we'll make it we'll make a weekend and we'll go we'll do it. We will pick subjects that not us you know people that we know that the psychics will not know and could not get information on. We'll record it, we'll and we'll score it. But I I. And this is, I do have to say that, you know, Alex, again, is proposing this, this protocol, and it's really naive. It's just incredibly naive because, you know, the score, it's all in the scoring. It's all in how you score the hits and misses. And he, he completely uh, does not consider the phenomenon of, of looking for specifics and generalities. That's how psychics make it seem as if they're being specific when they're not. Like when Rebecca and I sat at that one, one when she said, I see a uniform. You know, first you have, is it policeman or, or, uh, or fireman? Policeman or fireman. Yeah, then we Soldier. didn't endorse that. They said some kind of uniform. That's something that sounds specific, but I mean, come on. Think of, you know, who doesn't have somebody in their life that doesn't have some kind of uniform? It's something yeah, that's it's designed eight years old. to yeah. be, to sound specific when it really isn't. So you'd have to decide how we were really going to score the reading. But you know what? I'm I'm convinced enough that if we 
train the subjects not to give positive feedback that they'll perform as terribly as the three psychics we sat with a couple yep. weeks ago. Zero. Yeah, and then they and they'll get only the the random occasional vague hit. One one final point is that Alex accused us of of a, having basically a double standard of changing the rules, changing the nature of the game for psi research. And again, it's just incredibly naive on his part. You know, I interpret medical literature every day and apply it to my practice. And I apply the same kind of standards to, you know, to medical research. If a drug company was trying to get me to prescribe their drug because it had a 5% effect size, I would laugh at them. I mean, that's, again, that's just noise in the system. So he's making that accusation on, uh, without any factual basis whatsoever. And if he actually knew how science functioned, uh, he would he would know, or even just me personally. I mean, he would know that we're applying the same rules to Psy as we do to other research, not different rules. He just doesn't know what those rules are. That that being said, with that, <laughs> that that horse has been clubbed sufficiently. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two genuine and one fictitious. And then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. And here are the three items for this week. Item number one, astronomers have discovered organic building blocks in the upper atmosphere of Saturn's moon, Titan. Item number two, new research suggests that pedophiles consume more meat than normal controls. And item number three, Psychologists have demonstrated that a simple written test significantly increases the accuracy of a lie detector test. Evan, go first. Item one, astronomers discovered organic building blocks, upper atmosphere of Saturn's moon Titan. Dubious. Number two is research suggests pedophiles consume more meat than normal controls. Totally plausible. Number three, psychologists demonstrated written test significantly increases the accuracy of a lie detector test. Boy, I'd like to say one is fiction, um, but I don't know. I think that's a curveball. I'm usually pretty good at reading the stitches on the curveball. So, (laughs) I'll say... I'm going to say that the uh, pedophile's consuming more meat. That's the fiction. Okay. Rebecca? I agree. That's bizarre. I'm going to go with that one as well. Alrighty. Bob? Whew. The uh, number one, the organic building blocks in the upper atmosphere of Titan. I guess I could see that. We found organic building blocks in lots of other places. Um, it'd be interesting, though, to have it so close to home. The pedophiles and the more meat. I don't know. A three. This one's interesting. I'm not. Sure, I don't know if I'm interpreting this correctly, Steve. In what way? I mean, do you mean a written test instead of the verbal test? As an added procedure. As an added procedure. Oh, I got to think about that one. Oh God! Cue the music. I would. I would think that the fact that you've actually written it would make you more confident about your lies in in a way, and maybe even stifle your the feedback that the um, lie detector test relies on. In a way, it's kind of like rehearsing your lie. You rehearse it so much that it actually becomes harder to detect that you're actually lying. All right, so for that reason, I'm going to say three is fiction. Already, Jay? Wow. I didn't expect Bob to pick that one as the fiction. I'm actually leaning towards the, uh, the astronomers discovering organic building blocks in the upper atmosphere. Um, 
But there's something that's scratching me about pedophiles eating more meat. That just sounds so incredibly weird to me. And my mind just went somewhere really dirty, and I'm not going there again. Um, Jeez. Hey, hey, come on. I I hear cannibals eat more meat than the average person. That's true. They eat more meat of the average person. (laughs) 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 I like to be... uh, I'm going to go on my own, and I'm going to say that the uh, the first one is the fake about the uh, the building Woof, blocks. All Titan, all over the board. Okay. Oh. Well, let's take them in order. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. I know. I'm, <laughs> I'm so stupid. Astronomers have discovered organic building blocks in the upper atmosphere of Saturn's moon Titan. This story is science. Sorry, Jake. I knew that. Um, Very interesting. So Titan, which is the second largest moon in the solar system. Anyone know what the first largest moon is? Uh, Earth's moon. Nope. Not even close. Wait, wait. Oh, crap. It's not It's not Titan. It, we used to think it was Titan because we were measuring it to the edge of the atmosphere, but if you measure it to the edge of the surface... Is it Saturn's? Oh, isn't it maybe Pluto's moon? No. Sharon, no. Ganymede? Cerberus? It's got to be Cerberus? one of Jupiter's no. moon. Is it uh, yeah. Gany- Ganymede? Io? Ganymede, right. It's Ganymede. Oh, yeah. I thought that was Saturn's. Yep, Ganymede of Jupiter is one. Titan of Saturn is two. They're both larger than Mercury, the planet Mercury. Uh, but Titan's been very interesting for a while because it has an atmosphere. It's a moon with an atmosphere. Uh, it also has... Dense, isn't it dense? It's a very dense atmosphere. It also has lakes, although it's lakes of liquid methane, and it rains methane. Mm-hmm. And they thought that it would probably be too cold for this kind of thing to exist on Titan. But So they were a bit surprised by this. But what they found with uh, spectroscopic analysis is that there are very heavy um, hydrocarbon-based negative ions in the upper, upper atmosphere of Titan. And these could serve as building blocks for more complex organic molecules. Kind of like uh, what's that, nucleation cool. sites? or Yeah, right. Very interesting. Makes Titan even still more intriguing. Definitely have to send more probes there. Item number two, new research suggests that pedophiles consume more meat than normal controls. And this one is fiction. That is the fiction. <gasps> ah. High five, Rebecca. Congratulations, right. Evan and Rebecca. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a little bizarre. But I did base this on a real item. I hate all you people. So new research that shows that pedophilia may be the result of faulty brain wiring. This particular study... Uh, which is based on research conducted by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, uh, found that pedophiles have less white matter in their brains than normal controls. There's other research which also shows other uh, neurological differences between pedophiles and controls. Uh, Pedophiles have lower IQs, are three times more likely to be left-handed. Sinister. And even tend to be physically shorter than non-pedophiles. Uh, so there, these are all, you know, inferential. There's suggestions that maybe, you know, there's something genetically or developmentally different about about pedophiles. Uh, maybe their their brain did not develop or fully or in the way that 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 brains usually develop, and that this somehow correlates with their pedophilia. Again, there's we're far away from establishing any cause and effect. The researchers are clear to say that this in no way should be taken as implying that pedophiles should not be held responsible for their actions, just that this suggests that there may be an underlying neurological reason for their behavior. This does tend to contradict 
earlier, I mean, like going back decades, uh, assumptions that uh, pedophiles were created psychologically by their environment. Which means, psychologists have demonstrated that a simple written test significantly increases the accuracy of a lie detector test is science. That's an interesting thought you had, Bob. I actually hadn't considered that. Uh, But what they're doing is supplementing the lie lie detector test with a written test, and they're using what's called symptom validity testing in conjunction with polygraph testing, and it improves the accuracy of the results. Uh, Significantly? What this this does, they, they look for a patterns in word usage when they ask them to write about whatever it is, the information that they may be trying to conceal or be, or be untruthful about. And you can use a statistical method to analyze the word choices that people will make. For example, it says, uh, we showed that the accuracy of the concealed information test can be increased by adding a simple pencil and paper test. Uh, when guilty participants were forced to choose one answer for each question, a substantial proportion did not succeed in producing the random pattern that can be expected from innocent participants. So if you're asking somebody if they have any knowledge about something, and then uh, and they, they do, but they're trying to pretend that they don't, and then you analyze their answers. If they really don't have any knowledge about it and you give them, say, 20 yes or no questions, they should have a random distribution of correct and incorrect and yes or no answers. If, they're conceal- if they do have knowledge about it and they're concealing it, it'll be, they'll, have, they'll give a non-random result. They won't be able to fake generating a random result. It's a really interesting approach. And I bet you we could use that in a lot of other ways, too, that same basic approach, because I think that uh, it is very difficult for people to consciously fake random patterns or normal patterns. They will tend to betray themselves in, in the way, the, the details of, of how they uh, will report things and the words that they use, etc. Very interesting approach. So congratulations, Evan and Rebecca. Thank you, Steve. Ah, oh, thanks. Thanks. What about me and Bob, Steve? I mean, you guys got an honorable mention. Yeah, congrat- yeah congratulations. You you guys too. Bob, yes. good work, man. <laughs> yeah. It's good you guys thought your way through it. It was fine. You thought your way okay? through to the wrong answer. <laughs> Bob, you and I yeah. were represented, yeah. you know? <laughs> well, at least I didn't pick not, number it's all, one. It's okay. A- Alex w- Alex would have guessed one or three, so <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't worry, guys. <laughs> Evan, you got a puzzle for us this week? Actually, you have, can you tell us the answer to last week's puzzle? Yeah, we got to go back to last week's puzzle and talk about that one first. Last week's puzzle. This screwed-up analytic sham states the following. It starts with 167 and ends with 268, yet there are 112 in total. 110 of them are gone, one is here now, and one has yet to come. What is it? And the answer is... The Prophecy of St. Malachi, also known as the Prophecy of the Popes. Have you guys heard of this? No. No? No. St. Malachi. Uh, Saint Malachi. Is it Malachi? Uh, he, Malachi. M a l a c h y. Ah, yeah. Isn't that twelfth-century bishop? <laughs> Malachi. Okay. Whatever. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Twelfth-century <laughs> bishop of Armagh in Ireland, and uh, eleven thirty-nine came up with a prophecy having to do with uh, with the popes, in which uh, he attributed there were one hundred twelve of them. Little phrases in Latin that would describe the next 112 popes and something apparently quite grand would happen at the end of the 112th pope. The numbers 167 through 268 
that I mentioned in the puzzle represent the numbers in sequential order of the Pope starting in 1143 and, of course, running right up to 2007, uh, currently, Benedict XVI, who is number 111 currently. So 110 are gone. 110 popes have come and gone. Uh, One is currently here. One is yet to come. So number 268 represents the one that's yet to come, and who knows what's going to happen after that's done because we're going to be out of uh, Latin phrases to attribute to the popes. Mm Mm-hmm. So who knows? That must be Judgment Day or something. You never know right, with, uh, right. with these religious sorts. And I hate to ask so, you who got it right first because I think I, I yeah, think I know the answer. Yeah, well, I guess it didn't take a, uh, <laughs> a profit to see this one coming. But uh, Ole, hey, Ole Ivan. again, Ole. The guy's on a roll. Continuing got his domination of the puzzles. Right? Got it pretty quick, so he obviously was familiar with this from the get go and recognized the pattern. So, but congratulations, Ole. I think Ole wow, is a computer well program. He's not real. Well, there's a uh, there, there's a rumor going around that Ole is actually Steve, mm-hmm. another name, and you know it's his assumed name. Steve does have a lot of time on his hands and tends oh, yeah. to do things like this. Oh yeah, oh yeah, he's he's all over these puzzles. Like I'm looking uh, for like, stuff to do. I just got all this time on my hands. <laughs> and you know, I don't know if anybody knows this, but Steve is actually Evan, mm-hmm. just doing a different voice. It's really impressive. He's quick. Yes, yes. What who? <laughs> <laughs> You'll notice we never talk at the same time. Rebecca, you never. know I'm tired when what you just said That's confused right. me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, I need help. Evan, what's this week's puzzle? Okay, this week's puzzle is as such. It's a, it's, a, uh, it's, a, it's a poem, a short poem. An enemy of Scientology and a used car salesman to boot, he developed a strange philosophy of which Zen mastery was the root. Self-taught with no formal degree... He changed his name and ran from home. Gullible masses made him rich, you see. He fled the country with money to Rome. Who am I talking about? So, think about it, and good luck, everyone. Except to you, Ole. I'm, I'm tired. I'm done giving you good luck. You don't need it. Good luck, Ole. I hope you win again. Oh, stop that. Don't give him luck. Uh, Rebecca, you're contrarian. We don't believe in luck. We're skeptics. That's right. Luck is probability taken personally. I said Ole could be a woman. Yeah, maybe Ole's a girl. Uh, Ole could be anybody, anybody, anything. It could be Alex, for all we know. Who knows? Maybe mm-hmm. Alex has Skeptico up as a ruse to make people think he's really not with it or something. I, I like know. to think Ole is a beautiful fairy. No, unicorn. The parent, I'd like the to fu- think Ole is a puzzle fairy. Unicorn. <laughs> Ole is the puzzle fairy who rides, rides a unicorn. Rides in on rainbows. Who rides unicorns that farts rainbows. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Jay, give us a quote to end our show this week, please. She's beautiful. The rainbow. <laughs> um, th- Ole. This is a quote from Ole. I won, bitches. Uh, sorry. <laughs> this is a quote uh, from Steven Weinberg, who is an American physicist. And Mr. Weinberg says, The effort to understand the universe is one of the very few things that lifts human life a little above the level of farce and gives it some of the grace of tragedy. Steven Weinberg. That's a good quote. I like that. I like him. Yeah. That is a good quote. Very nice. Very poetic. Is he related to you, Steve? There's a lot of Steves <laughs> around. I guess so. You can't all be related. 
Okay. But maybe, maybe yeah, he's one of the Steves. Yeah. He's in the family of Steves. Yes. Signed, the, signed the papers. Or is that like a genus? There, is that a genus? There's a, pro- genus? there's a prophecy of the Steves, but that's a whole other story. Yeah, that's right. A couple quick other. announcements. Just a, a reminder that I'll be giving a lecture for the uh, New York City Skeptics on December 8th from 1 to 4 p.m. at the uh, New York Public Library, 425 Avenue of the Americas. And also a quick plug for TAM 5.5, which is coming up January 26th to, through 27th in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can Where still get I will tickets. be speaking. Yes, where Rebecca, the lovely Rebecca, will be speaking, representing the SGU, while we're preparing to all of us go to TAM 6 in June. Woo-hoo. But she'll be holding down the fort for us at TAM 5.5 in January. Um, and I understand there is definitely still room, so go on to the James Randi Education Foundation website and get your tickets. And as an added bonus, they might even be doing a test for the Million Dollar Challenge at TAM 5.5. Wow. It's not nice. set in stone yet, but it could be very Not fun. making any so, promises? Yeah. No promises. <laughs> but, but make your travel plans accordingly. But we might have found a real psychic. <laughs> no promises. This could be the one. Could be the one after all this This could years. be the, the one. psychic. You need to be there. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining me again. Thank you, Steve. Anytime. Thanks, Steve. Very interesting stuff tonight. Yep, always a pleasure. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by the New England Skeptical Society in association with the James Randi Educational Foundation and Skeptic.org. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. For questions, suggestions, and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by voting for us on Dig or leaving us a review on iTunes. You can find links to these sites and others through our homepage. Theorem is produced by Kineto and is used with permission. 